0: How's it going? And welcome back to another episode of Titan Up The Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a nice time whenever the heck you're listening to this thing. We got kind of a weird episode for you in a number of ways. Definitely in terms of the content of the issue we're going to be covering, but also in terms of our typical format. You see, Corey shrunk down to the size of an ant, and is off having some adventures. He was able to relay this information to me by dragging a piece of a burnt leaf over the top of some butter that was out in my kitchen. Now, we considered trying to record the episode that way, through the intermediary of burnt leaf pieces on top of butter... But with podcasting being a largely audio medium, I wasn't sure how that would work out. Now, we've got a great guest, one you've heard from before, but I also didn't want to jump in on the middle of a different story arc. In both The Defenders and The New Teen Titans, we're kind of in the middle of storylines right now and the stuff that we're covering. Fortunately, the last issue of The Defenders that we covered had Valkyrie going off to be in a spin off issue to discover more about her origin and the person that she used to be before Enchantress intervened. So, today we're going to be covering Marvel 2 in 1 number 7. And because my wife Lisa was with us when we covered the first appearance of the Valkyrie and the Defenders back in Defenders number 4, I thought it would be nice to have her cover and see where the character has gone since then. So, all of that is to say, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a bit of a standalone in some ways, and I know that normally this week we would be covering a new Teen Titans issue. I know some of you are just probably listening to the Teen Titans episodes, so sorry about that. This is more Defender-centric. We'll be back next week with the Teen Titans, and I hope you like this. It was a lot of fun to record, and hopefully you can have fun listening to it. Okay. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. When the Dane says something's rotten, he means things are amiss. And there's sure rotten somethings in the synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. How right you are. Marvel 2-in-1, number 7, January 1975. Name that doom. Written by Steve Gerber, drotted by Sal Busema, with inks by Mike Esposito. Also worth noting, the colorist on this issue is Bill Mantlo, who went on to become one of my favorite writers at Marvel during the Bronze Age. So, that's kind of fun. Defensive lineup. Doctor Strange. Valkyrie. The Thing. Previously in The Defenders. Barbara Norris was a member of an evil cult that worshipped an evil two-headed extra-dimensional douche oxymoronically named The Nameless One. I call him Glenn. Barbara tricked Hulk into getting trapped in some shitty dimension to fight Glenn's enemies or something. But then she felt bad about that, so the other cultists tossed her in after the Green Goliath. Doctor Strange headed over to Glenn's place to rescue the Hulk, but he got trapped in that shitty dimension himself. Babs decided to sacrifice herself and stay with Glenn, which allowed the Hulk and Steve Strange to return to their respective homes. Sometime later, the Defenders stumbled across Glenn's pad during one of their adventures. Steve was surprised to see that Glenn was now sporting three heads rather than two, and one of them looked an awful lot like a certain Miss Norris. Turned out that during their exile, Barbara started stockholming ing something and decided to mate with the dual-domed demon, which, in the context of their extra-dimensional realm, meant mystically grafting her head onto the top of Glenn's weird pile of anatomy. Gross! Steve decided to rescue Barbara from her problematic relationship by severing her psychic bond with Glenn and jamming her back into her own body. Hooray? No, not hooray. Because severing her psychic bond with Glenn without warning against her will left Babs with an unfortunate and apparently incurable case of magically induced madness. Bad job, Steve. The Defenders decided to drag Barbara, whose dialogue at the time consisted entirely of a long string of capital A's, along with them on their next adventure, which took them to a mystical realm. In that realm, they ran afoul of a pair of perfidious Asgardian assholes. Amora the Enchantress and her estranged boyfriend, Scourge the Executioner. Amora used her powers to overwrite Barbara's personality with that of the Valkyrie, a badass feminist super-powered Scandinavian swordslinger. Despite owing her origin to an Asgardian asshole like Imora, Valkyrie was a noble hero and joined the Defenders. But, after 12 issues of teaming up with our titular non-team, Val decided that she owed it to the memory of the woman she used to be to find out as much as she could about Barbara Norris, and perhaps in the process, learn who Valkyrie was. The Defenders wished her well and bid her a fond farewell, as Valkyrie headed to Vermont to commence her self-identity-seeking sojourn. Gadzooks, will our noble Norse... Wait, shit. I gotta do a whole nother one of these for the Previously in Marvel 2 and 1. Okay, so. Previously in Marvel 2 and 1. Steven Strange and Cleo were waiting for the subway when a weird hippie lady with a magic harmonica fell onto the train tracks. Steve tried to rescue the lady, but she insisted instead that he save the harmonica, as it was more important than she was. For some reason, that sounded reasonable to Steve, so he went after the harmonica, and the mysterious stranger got hit by a train. Steve sure picked an odd time to start respecting people's wishes. When the speeding locomotive hit the maladroit magician, something even more surprising than Steve listening to a woman happened. The uncoordinated harmonica had exploded into a shower of magical sparks, one of which landed on each witness to the accident. Steve and Clea took the harmonica back to the Sanctum Sanctimonious for further study. Examination revealed that the instrument in question was a potent magical device called the Harmonica of Destiny, and that each commuter who was present at the scene of the cosmic collision was now in great danger. Meanwhile, one of the commuters in question contacted the Fantastic Four's Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing. It seemed that weird shit was starting to go down and they figured that having a walking pile of orange rocks poking around might help normalize the situation. Good thinking. It turned out that everyone who came into contact with the Harmonica Hippie's luminescent remains was being confronted with a physical manifestation of their destiny. Or their greatest fear. Or inner self-image. Or something. Steve and Ben teamed up and were able to use a combination of stone fists and sorcery to combat a giant rat, which had been the manifestation of one bystander's fear of poverty, or possibly destiny of poverty, and one guy's face being erased, which I guess represented his fear of anonymity or unimportance, or possibly his destiny to become the Charlton Comics hero of the question. Tough to tell. The unlikely duo of The Thing and Doctor Strange managed to account for the whereabouts and well-being of almost all the Spock-suffering spectators, the one exception being a homeless alcoholic man named Alvin Denton, Oh well, close enough. The two disparate do headed back to Steve's place to sort out what to do with the Harmonica of Destiny, but upon arriving were informed by Clea that the MacGuffin in question was no longer there. Valkyrie had popped in and vamoosed with it! Gadzooks! Will our valiant viking warrior finally find out who she really is? To what mystic realm did Amora and the executioner flee after their last encounter with our heroes? And, Will this metric ton of exposition help this upcoming issue make a goddamn lick of sense? Stay tuned to find out! Okay, so, no. A gas station in Vermont, sort of. And, no, sadly, that does not appear to be our destiny. The homeless drunk from the subway station, Alvin Denton, is hanging out on a park bench being sad and drunk. Suddenly, from out of nowhere... Valkyrie swoops down on her magic flying horse, grabs the aforementioned alcohol aficionado, and disappears in one of those magical implosion poofs. Huh. Wait, I thought she left her flying horse Aragorn back at the private riding academy with Nighthawk when she went on her quest. Hmm. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve Strange and the Thing are using Steve's mystical Google search engine, the Orb of Agamotto, to find out where Valkyrie went with the Harmonica of Destiny the orb reveals that Val is sleeping under a tree in the town of Cobbler's Roost, Vermont. Well, that's odd. Steve remarks that she couldn't have possibly had time to travel from Vermont, swipe the harmonica of nonsense from Clea, and then have gone back to Vermont in the time since they last saw her. Really, Steve? That's the thing that seems off to you? A magical harmonica hippie exploded in front of you, you fought a giant rat alongside your buddy, a walking pile of orange rocks, then you magic a teenager's face back on. But a rapid commute to Vermont? Why, that's just implausible. Stephen Strange is a man of mercurial credulity. Steve and Ben recap the events of the last issue for a couple pages, then decide that Ben should head up to Vermont and see what Val is up to while Steve stays home and clears his eldritch browser history, er, uses his powers to search for the missing hobo and harmonica of bullshit. The thing climbs into his flying super-science mobile, the Fantasticar, and starts soaring towards the Green Mountain state. Cool. Only problem is, much like myself, Benjamin Grimm has no idea where in Vermont Cobbler's Roost is located. After aimlessly zooming around the state that I like to think of as Yin to New Hampshire's Yang, the mineral marvel decides to stop and ask for directions at a gas station. Rather than politely but firmly informing the pebble-exteriored pugilist that you can't get there from here, the gas station attendant sucker-punches the stone superhero with a giant mace. You know, I do believe that might affect his tip. It turns out that the attendant is none other than a disguised Scourge the Executioner. He and his perfidious partner Amora the Enchantress manage to ambush the thing and knock him unconscious. The ambushing Asgardian asswipes reveal that the harmonica and Hobo Hamburgling was not Valkyrie's handiwork after all, but that of Amora disguised as Valkyrie. The pair of pretend purveyors of petroleum want to use the harmonica of malarkey to rule the world. Or something. And after they swiped the musical MacGuffin, they needed to kidnap the unfortunate Mr. Denton because... Uh... Just because. And then they laid a trap and formed a mystical, imaginary New England gas station to trap the thing, because... Uh, also just because. Look, they don't understand it either, but figure that it's all part of the Harmonica's plan, or something, because destiny. So there. Then they decide that the Harmonica of Lazy Writing probably likes Ben and Alvin, so after taking all the trouble to respectively ambush and kidnap them, the villainous Aesir decide to let them go. Sure why the hell not? A confused Ben Grimm wakes up and wants to know, what happened? You and me both, buddy. Ben goes on to rouse a similarly befuddled Alvin Denton, who implores his rocky rescuer to drive him to, you guessed it, Cobbler's Roost, Vermont, so he can look for his daughter. Hmm. Steve Strange's astral projection shows up and is all, Hey, you guys should probably come back to New York. It's cool here, and I've got lots of interesting stuff that I own that I can explain at you. But Ben tells his erstwhile astral amigo to buzz off, and astoundingly, Steve buzzes off. On their trip north, Alvin fills his new buddy in on his tragic backstory. Turns out that Alvin used to be a super successful lawyer who had houses in both New York and Vermont. But then his wife died in a car accident, and he kind of lost his shit. His daughter got him back on his feet for a little while, but then she and her fiancé Jack got mixed up in some kind of occult mumbo-jumbo, and then she just disappeared. Hmm. After that, Alvin started drinking like a damn monster and lost all his stuff, and now his life is super shitty. Anyway, looks like we're here, thanks for the lift buddy! The two travelers conclude their road trip and clamor out of the fantastic car. Alvin immediately spots a familiar-looking blonde lady waking up from a snooze under a tree. He yells, Barbara! And starts running up and hugs the confused young woman, who is none other than, wait for it, Valkyrie! What? I know! Who could have possibly seen this crazy twist coming? Then a whole bunch of crazy shit happens all at once. Okay, here goes. A startled Valkyrie draws her sword against a derelict she doesn't recognize. When she does so, a spell that Steve put on her sword kicks in that changes her from civilian duds into her Valkyrie armor. Cool. Alvin explains that he's her dad, and they're both freaked out that she doesn't recognize him. Then Amora and Scourge jump out and yell, surprise! Amora zaps Val with her magic and transforms her back to Barbara Norris, who is still magically incoherent and shrieking capital A's mindlessly. Amora gloats for a second but then a distraught Alvin Denton grabs the deus ex harmonica from her and starts tooting the shit out of it, which causes the whole world to start melting. Okay. See, it turns out that Denton's destiny is to die a drunkard and see his whole world be destroyed. So, when he toots the harmonica of Calvinism, it creates a physical manifestation of that destiny and starts literally destroying and melting the whole dang planet. Shitty. The Enchantress reckons she doesn't want to rule a melted, broken planet, so she turns Barbara back into Val and is like, Look, pal, I fixed your daughter again for you. Now, unmelt the planet, please. Unfortunately, Alvin Denton is in no shape to unmelt anything right then, because he is having a heart attack. Val, Ben, Amora, and Scourge all start fighting each other for possession of the Harmonica. Val tries to hit Enchantress, but part of her whole deal is that she's magically unable to hit another woman, so she hits the Executioner instead. Ben K.O.'s Amora, then goes over and slugs the Executioner who is overpowering Valkyrie. The terracotta-esque Titan then presses the Harmonica of Destiny to his unyielding lips and blows. The world around them instantly returns to normal, with one notable difference. Alvin Denton, is dead from a heart attack. Benjamin Grimm consoles Valkyrie as she mourns the death of the father she doesn't know and the loss of the one link she had to potentially unearthing her hidden past. As we leave this solemn scene, we are left with but one lingering question. What happened? And Cory got hit on the part of his head that made him shrink down to the size of an ant. But not to worry, even among the ant men, Cory is mighty. He's probably off having some adventures with a beautiful ant princess right now. (laughs) Fortunately for us, in his absence, we have a very able co-host, my good for everything wife, Lisa. Lisa, how's it going? Hi,
1: it's great. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, I'm very happy to have you here. Lisa, as listeners may remember, joined us for the very first appearance of Valkyrie back in The Defenders number four, and so I thought it was appropriate that we uh, have her back when we are discussing her origin, which, sort of her origin uh, story, as it starts taking place in Marvel 2-in-1 number seven. So, Lisa, what'd you think?
1: I thought it was good. Kind of confusing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a panel where it's just a close up of the thing's face, and he's saying, What happened? <laughs> and that was, I kept thinking of that when I was thinking of my reaction to the comic book. Like, as soon as I finished reading it, I put it down and thought, What happened?
1: <laughs> I feel like if this was, if I was reading it when it was actually serialized, I would be frustrated and confused.
0: I think that's fair. And there, there's an amount of that that happened when I read it, even now. I had to, This was one that I had to go back and read a couple of times to figure out what's happening. And then having done so, it was more like, okay, I get what you're doing. There's parts of it that I really liked. A lot of the language I thought was beautiful. Like the, the way that the captioning was written, I really enjoyed. The story itself and the pacing seemed pretty self-indulgent in a bunch of ways.
1: I feel like maybe it could have either been condensed or filled out, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I know what you mean.
0: Not quite one and not quite the other.
1: Or like it was edited poorly or something happened. You know, when you get that sense of the movie, you're like, what did you do?
0: (laughs) I kind of get the impression that it was really more... This is a writer named Steve Gerber, who I like a lot. And this is the first that we're viewing of his work on the podcast. We're going to see a lot more of it coming up. It mentions that this story is continued in Defenders number 20. And in issue 20, Steve Gerber takes over as the series regular writer. And he's the Defenders writer for quite some time. He's the guy who created Howard the Duck and Omega the Unknown, which are series which I really love Omega the Unknown. I really like aspects of Howard the Duck. And overall, I think it's really interesting and worth like reading. But he has some quirks as a writer, and not all of them are great. And we see him kind of fleshing out his style here a little bit.
1: What, do you, what would you consider his quirks as a writer?
0: Well... He tends to veer towards self-indulgence, sometimes in a very interesting way, sometimes at the expense of the story. One of my favorite of his stories is there's a Howard the Duck issue that is all about Steve Gerber as a writer having writer's block and not knowing what to say in these characters. And it's very freeform, and it's really interesting, and I love that issue. But that tendency doesn't always lend itself well to the storytelling to
1: like the narrative structure it's just like oh i'm gonna wander around like george R. R. martin
0: i like george i know
1: i know but like he he actually
0: i don't think it's in this issue but a lot of the comic books that i have he is in the the letters column he wrote letters to a ton of these old comic books
1: oh that's pretty awesome actually yeah
0: but um i'm sorry continue
1: oh no no i just i was saying like you just kind of let things meander until something happens (laughs)
0: Yeah, it seems very much like he is writing without an outline. Yeah, Um, yeah. And he has some interesting and really far out there ideas, some of which come across pretty well, some of which come across as, as I said, a little bit self-indulgent. However, this is a very good example of what is not just what is great, but this is a very good example of a Bronze Age comic book. And that's some of the things that I really like about Bronze Age comic books. This definitely has all of the elements of wackiness and weirdness from a Silver Age comic book, but then has the mm, drug influence, I would say, of the 70s and also the kind of attempts at social relevance. I was
1: thinking about like the social justice part about having a lady and also like the wino thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that is kind of just kind of Bronze Age. And before you read this, you went back and read a bunch of the other Valkyrie appearances that have happened since her debut, which was the last issue that we covered together. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the development of Valkyrie as a character?
1: Um, I I don't know if she's developed a ton.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I really almost said or lack thereof, (laughs) but I didn't want it to be leading. I feel like she actually debuts as a stronger character than she ends up becoming as the series goes on. And that was actually one of the things that really frustrated me about this issue was we were kind of promised a Valkyrie-centric story that's going to be like her going on an adventure to find out more about herself. And she has... I think five lines in this comic book and doesn't really take a ton of action and doesn't really seem to have a ton of agency as a character. And I think that's pretty typical for what we've seen at least recently in the comic books. But
1: That's kind of her thing. I mean, she's a lady being written by dudes who wears like weird cone breast armor, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, which I have a slight issue with.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't seem like the most practical or perhaps comfortable. It
1: just seems like, why do you need to protect those as opposed to like your heart?
0: (laughs) I had not even considered the practical aspects of it. Maybe it's something like, like Batman in his costume, right over the center of his chest, he has the bat symbol and that is the most heavily armored part of his armor. Mm. And it's like, well, it draws people's attention. So if somebody shoots at him, they're going to shoot him there. He can't afford to have like, a fully armor-plated uh, costume because of the weight that that would add to it. So he puts a target on his chest for people to shoot at. Maybe that's what Valkyrie's doing with her boobs. Like, that's maybe like, hold on, she's on, hold on, like, hold on. I will just... armor these and make them real shiny.
1: Actually, you know what? That's what all women do with their breasts. <laughs> <laughs> that's what breasts are for.
0: <laughs> okay, good to know.
1: Oh! <laughs> I'm trying to like,
0: this... try to explain her
1: costume. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the, uh, uh, yeah, we're going to move on now. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I don't feel like Valkyrie uh, has developed extensively as a character. I just feel like she's kind of, she's strong and that's cool. And she has this kind of quest that she's thinking about doing that sort of happens a little bit.
0: That kind of happens to her.
1: Oh, because of Destiny. That was something that really confused me. Like, I don't know what Destiny is, apparently.
0: Well, good news. (laughs) Apparently, neither does Steve Gerber. Because I kept thinking, that's not Harmonica of Destiny? That's not... Okay, it sets it up kind of like a Final Destination type situation, (laughs) only with less Rube Goldberg devices, which I missed, because I think that would have been a lot more fun to have those in there. But really, for the most part, it seems more like it's a Harmonica of Poetry than of destiny it's more like the people that the harmonica affects it more is like hey let's have a visual manifestation of how you think about yourself
1: oh is that what that was
0: maybe that, i mean that was the, the context that made the most sense to me huh like how do you think of your life this harmonica will manifest that in a, into reality but writ large that's why I was thinking, like, a re- uh, it's more of a harmonica of poetry, kind of.
1: That's interesting. I thought that the explanation of what that was, where they were like, these little mites touched these people, and suddenly their world shifted, and I thought that was what destiny did? Was it changed your life?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the, I, I don't know. I don't like the idea of destiny to begin with, so mm-hmm. I'm maybe not the mm-hmm. best person to be reading into this, but it Mostly just seemed like a lazy storytelling device. Like, anytime that there was a question of, wait, why, it doesn't make sense that this is why this is happening here. Oh, it would get explained away as like, well, that's destiny manifesting itself. And when you have an instrument that is specifically labeled as, I mean, in this case, a literal instrument. Yeah. That is specifically labeled an instrument of destiny, then that's what you end up with well
1: maybe he needed like an easy one for his first defenders issue (laughs) maybe he was like okay let's just give me a pass for this (laughs)
0: <laughs> Maybe. I will say, that the Marvel 2-in-1, the format of it as a comic book, I kind of enjoy. The idea is that the Thing is the central character in it, and each week he teams up with a different hero. This month, allegedly it's Valkyrie. Last month it was Doctor Strange. I think next month it's Ghost Rider for some reason, but it's he is the through arc, and then he meets and has adventures with these other people. Part of what that ended up meaning is this is kind of a second or third tier comic book that Marvel was putting out, so it had less editorial input, which can be really good for a comic book. I think this one maybe could have used a little bit more, but they get to do weirder stories and do things that would maybe slip by censors or editors because the editors are paying more attention to what's happening in, say, The Avengers and Spider-Man and stuff like that.
1: Huh. That's kind of interesting. So what do you think in this comic? Do you feel like there was something that slipped by the censors? Obviously, there's maybe a little influence of uh, some sort of psychedelic substance.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's definitely paying homage to that. And when it, we heard like that it was the harmonica of destiny, I was like, is that like a reference to the harmonic convergence? And it's not. That wasn't until 87. I was off by like over a decade on that one. I think really what it just was was... It's kind of a fairly typical I think comic book trope to have a blank of destiny or some large concept like that and I think he just thought harmonica was kind of a funny one to have as opposed to like a trumpet or a flute or Mm -hmm. any other Mm -hmm. instrument either literally or
1: maybe he's really just speaking to the emergence of blues rock in the 1970s.
0: Is that when that really came about? I'm Like you say mean yes. like like Led Zeppelin kind of? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that makes sense. They didn't really have a ton of harmonica, I don't think.
1: You know, I'm just saying like very serious bluesy.
0: That is when uh harmonica player Bluesy Huey Lewis uh, started <laughs> debuting was in the 70s. He actually made his debut as Bluesy Huey Lewis playing the harmonica on a Thin Lizzy album, the Johnny the Cat live album.
1: How you keep these things in your brain.
0: Oh, it's because I forget important things. (laughs) There's only so much room I have up here, and most of it is taken up with, when did Huey Lewis, a recording artist I am familiar with, but not particularly enamored of, make his recording debut?
1: And yet you're still the person who remembers our wedding anniversary.
0: (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) If you were to choose a instrument of destiny, what would you choose if you were writing a story around it?
1: Oh, man. Is it like the same context as this story?
0: It can be any context. There's an instrument of destiny. What would you have it be?
1: Um, I think I would want it to be horribly cumbersome.
0: Okay, so that nobody plays <laughs> so it. So like
1: a calliope.
0: <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one yeah like maybe a tuba
1: a tuba just of like, destiny. W-
0: yeah like one that it's difficult to get a sound out what? of if you don't know what you're doing
1: yeah or also like how about like having something like really physically like a like a pipe organ of destiny oh, okay
0: <laughs> that it's just difficult to get to, from one place to another that way you get to guard it easily mm, Good
1: mm-hmm, thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what about you
0: I I think I would go with a tuba. Just, I mean, it's physically cumbersome to carry around, but also it is, like, the thing doesn't necessarily know how to play a harmonica, but he blows the harmonica and it has the same effect. I think if you blow into a tuba, but you don't know how to do the (laughs) thing with your lips, then it would just, like, you'd just be blowing air through the tuba and then everything's fine because it doesn't make a noise and the world doesn't melt or whatever.
1: And generally, horn players are really nice people.
0: I am still delighted by the fact that I don't know if this is still the case, and I am now terrified to check. But for a very long time, if you looked up Bone Zone on the internet, the first site that popped up was a site for trombone enthusiasts. Oh, that's adorable. It is. And like I said, I suspect that is no longer the case. And I am kind of scared to find out. And now it's
1: actually a place for chiropractors. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know my feelings on chiropractic. That's why I don't want to find out. But yeah, like I said, I think the destiny thing is kind of a bullshit storytelling device because it does give you kind of a pass. Like there's all of these scenes in which like Enchantress shoots the thing in the back and would kill him and tries to kill him again, but then he doesn't die. Why doesn't he die? Oh, he must be protected by destiny. So I guess we should get out of the way and let destiny like decide its course and then We'll just kind of follow it around. So, like, whenever it's like, that doesn't really make sense. That's not their thing. They're clearly trying to interfere with Destiny because they have wants and needs. Or, you know, in their case, they're evil. So more wants than needs, probably. But they want to interfere with this thing. They are trying to subvert Destiny, clearly. But they also were like, oh, but we'll get out of its way and let Destiny do things.
1: Well, I think ultimately their goal, and I don't know if this is explained in, in different issues that I didn't read, but... There was a way that you could use the instrument of destiny to get your own ends. Which is, yeah, which is kind of what is so weird about it. And that's why, like, when he blows into it and his world falls apart, it's just a very odd, like, I don't know. Yeah,
0: is it a harmonica of Calvinism? (laughs) Is, Is it like, you blow on the harmonica and it reveals what God's plan for you was all along? It's like, if you're rich, you blow on it and that means that God loves you the most. If you're poor, then that means you're going to hell.
1: Yay. Yeah. But uh, speaking of the Enchantress and the Executioner. Yeah. Do you think they're like a couple that just has like a really shitty relationship, but they're like comfortably unhappy?
0: I think kind of. Their relationship changes a lot as it goes on. It's generally their relationship is the Executioner is super in love with Amor the Enchantress and she uses that Mm -hmm. and... That's kind of that,
1: but he but got grumpy at her.
0: <laughs> he got grumpy at her. Well, and and this is a weird space because this is one of the first times they've showed up since their last appearance that we covered, which was the Defenders number four, which was the Executioner had finally had enough of her shit and ran off with Cassiolina and decided he, he was going to be. He does, and then at the end decided, well, maybe we can be a team again, but we'll actually be a team this time. So this is them trying that dynamic out. I think a little bit more and doesn't seem like it's going great there's definitely a shift in the power dynamic and it definitely does shift all the way back as stories go on so in like later thor issues it is very much that he is in love with her and she doesn't give a shit about him but he is super devoted and i think deep down she does really love him and when he gets murdered later it's real sad and i just had a huge spoiler spoiler. (laughs) i'm looking at the look on your face (laughs) baby it's a spoiler that came out over 30 years ago (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he ends up dying a hero that's and fighting the hordes of hell oh that's uh, nice turns around he he holds a bridge by himself is that
1: what the ragnarok movie is going to be about
0: there is a scene that looks like it is very much going Are to be you about excited that excited about that i am excited about it miles who was a guest on this show before that is his favorite comic book and his favorite scene in a comic book is executioner holding the bridge
1: oh he's and a very nice man by the way agreed
0: but yeah, I think that is, at this point, a pretty accurate description of their relationship, at least as it's depicted here. They're unhappy, but they're comfortable mm-hmm. with with it. Like when you have a bad job, but you don't want to quit because it's easier than looking for a new job.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just seem like they're not communicating super well. No. Like they could use some like nonviolent communication courses.
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Sometimes when you do this, it makes me feel...
0: <laughs> Let's try to avoid using should words, Amora. But one thing that maybe they should do... Oh, no! (laughs) Ah! I have a bad relationship with the Enchantress and the Executioner. (laughs) Because they're super fun. (laughs) They build a gas station out in the middle of nowhere.
1: Oh, and it's called Zero!
0: Yeah! (laughs) What was up with that?
1: I think it was just a hint.
0: Was it about, like, the gas crisis? Or was it, like, Oh, that is
1: happening at that time, right? Maybe. I haven't actually looked into that. Was it
0: 75? It
1: was... No, because I was looking up for... Um, A long time ago. Oh, and And, that
0: was when the gas crisis was hitting? So there was zero gas?
1: I was thinking it was just like, don't stop here. It's a bad place. Except,
0: (laughs) So they were using some like reverse psychology on the thing, or maybe they subconsciously wanted their plan to fail.
1: Oh. Oh.
0: It seemed like a really weird and specific choice that they made. First of all, I don't know why they took Denton to Vermont to begin with.
1: Were they in Vermont? Yeah. They said a few hours pass.
0: Well, okay, the thing was headed to Vermont Uh to find Valkyrie. And he's flying from New York. Uh So either they're in upstate New York or they're in Vermont. I assumed they had made it to Vermont, but you're right. There isn't a ton to base that on. While he's on his way, he realizes that he doesn't know how to get there. So he sees this gas station, which it turns out is not a gas station. Why did he stop there? How did they know that he was going to need directions when he was right there? Destiny. (laughs) So
1: were they touched by the the little fairy things of destiny? I'm no, they just king. wanted
0: to steal the harmonica so they could blow it and make their own shitty poetry. It's so I guess.
1: confusing. It
0: really was. I'm confused. That is understandable. Why did they set up a gas station? Why did they decide that they needed to once they kidnapped the guy? They had the harmonica at that point. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they needed to knock out the thing.
1: I I think that maybe we just need to not think about the
0: plot. Yeah, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> Yeah, I think that really most of the plot points are either intentionally or unintentionally you can sweep up under the rug because of Destiny, which, like I said, is one of the reasons why I don't like that.
1: So I really liked The Thing.
0: I love The Thing. He's one of my favorite characters in comic books and we never really get to discuss him.
1: Yeah, he's a cool dude, man. I like his language. I think it's fun to read. It is.
0: Overall, I get a little bit annoyed with phonetically spelled out accents in comic Mm -hmm. books. He is speaking in the very typical, like, Brooklyn Tough Guy accent. And we, before the show, discussed a little bit about how he was created by Jack Kirby kind of as a stand-in for himself. And then his dialogue at first was Stan Lee's caricature of Jack Kirby. And now it's Steve Gerber's impression of Stan Lee's caricature of Jack Kirby
1: layers upon layers
0: indeed but mostly he's just a cool cool dude who's made of orange rocks
1: (laughs) i like the shading on him too like because the art's really pretty but on page 16 my favorite thing maybe the entire comic book that he does is establish healthy boundaries with dr strange
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's about time somebody did and i was amazed that dr strange respected those boundaries
1: it's okay it's because he's a man
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, i guess he doesn't always do that with other dudes though either (laughs) But yeah, you're right.
1: It's because he's an orange man. <laughs> ah,
0: it's interesting that Doctor Strange, well, interesting or another thing that maybe needs to be swept up under the umbrella of destiny. Uh, oh, that would be not a bad device. The umbrella of destiny is Doctor Strange's behavior in this issue where he's like, the harmonica is the most important thing in the world. I will look for the dude with a harmonica. You go deal with Val. The thing goes off to deal with Val. Or to find her and see if she's okay and see what what her connection with things is. Doctor Strange ostensibly stays in New York to look for the harmonica. Once he realizes that the harmonica and the thing are in Vermont, he's like, All right, well, I'm just going to stick around New York. Be careful, guys.
1: <laughs> Maybe he has complete faith in Val's abilities, though. Did you ever think that?
0: I did not ever think that.
1: Maybe he's just like, hey, that chick has got it going on. Martially.
0: she i mean and she does sort of it isn't really demonstrated in this issue that was another thing that really bothered me was that i feel like they are making her as the series goes on less and less strong not just in terms of her character but physically like she beat up the executioner and all his bad guys in when she first showed up and in this one She needs to be rescued from the executioner by the thing at the end and rescued from the whole situation by her dad.
1: But maybe there's just like some sort of internal conflict with Barbara v. Valkyrie that's causing this strife and causing her to weaken. Yeah. Maybe ultimately she'll be a very strong character. Maybe ultimately she'll get her own damn book. Maybe. That's not going
0: to happen, is it? She gets a (laughs) miniseries. Damn. She does get written better later on by other writers, definitely. But what we do find out about her backstory is that her mom died in a car crash, and then her dad freaked out, and then she and her fiancé, Jack Norris, got mixed up in the occult, and that led her to the whole Nameless One situation, which everybody in this comic book ascribes to Barbara Norris's, nay Denton's, magically-influenced madness... oh, that's all the Nameless One's fault. But it was Doctor Strange who severed her tie with the Nameless One, Mm -hmm. which was what caused her madness. And everybody's just sweeping that up under the rug.
1: Yeah. I find it incredibly problematic to just call somebody mad and make them not have any sort of efficacy as a human.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or attempt any treatment of her. To, 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 like, just, like, that... She shows up and she is just shrieking and confused, which... Yeah. I mean, when she shows up in this one, it's... The world's melting and is crazy and st- it's, stuff. She
1: does, in in all fairness, she sh- shows up right before the world starts oh, to melt. Oh, okay. And it's, and it's kind of the trigger for her father to make the world melt.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which, you know, yeah, it's it's just, it's a weird... I don't know, it's, it's like a further infantilization of a very strong woman
0: like yeah. somebody
1: who's able to mate with like you know a chaotic destiny i don't know what is the nameless one nameless one
0: oh yeah yeah he's the nameless one <laughs> just a space weirdo
1: As somebody who's able to mate with like an extreme space weirdo i mean like <laughs> girls got something going on
0: you sure do <laughs> No, no, as we have established on the show, I am a human man from Earth, <laughs> as I constantly tell everyone. But yeah, no, that that is definitely problematic, and really the treatment of mental illness, not just in this comic book, but in comic books in general, not great.
1: Well, I, I get it, and I also understand that it's like 1974, and I also understand right. that this is like escapist white male fantasy, you know, during, <laughs> is Vietnam happening right now? Uh, I think so. Yep. Um, it's just, it's just shitty, but yeah. I'm not surprised.
0: <laughs> Agreed. It would be nice if maybe like anyone made any attempt to like, well, not even treatment necessarily, but like, let's wait this out a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> before we overwrite her entire personality what? again.
1: <laughs> Hold on. Actually, that is actually how you treated mental illness in 1974 <laughs> is like, oh shit, something's happening. Put this person away. Yeah. <laughs> So really, it's just reflective of the times. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. uh, Only instead of
0: just yeah, shutting her up in an institution, they shut her up in a dark corner of her mind. And hey, there's this body (laughs) walking around. Maybe you could use this strong lady personality that's maybe made up and magical, but maybe isn't.
1: Is that ever addressed? Like whether what who eventually? Okay, that's good. In her miniseries.
0: I don't. I haven't actually read (laughs) her miniseries. It's pretty recent. Jesus. But she does become a more central character in the Defenders later on.
1: It's the best we can do.
0: What did you think of the tweaks that Doctor Strange put on her magic sword, Dragon Fang?
1: Uh, that it got her her boob outfit back? Cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's kind of useful that when she pulls it out, then she changes into her, like, superhero persona. Like, that's a pretty decent quick change device.
1: Do you like calling it a boob suit?
0: (laughs) I don't believe I ever have.
1: (laughs) I give you permission. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) So one thing I did want to talk about is when you blow into the harmonica of destiny, Mm -hmm. do you think that what happens is you just enter somebody else's reality? Like, so when Denton blows into the harmonica of destiny, the world starts to fall apart because that's what's happening for him. And that's what's been happening for him for a long time. Mm -hmm. When those other dudes blew into their harmonica of destiny, like whatever their individual experience of reality was, was like happened and manifested. Right. So like, is the plot device...
0: That it rewrites the world through the holder of the instrument's eyes?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Kinda, yeah. I I think that would be one way to put it.
1: So, really, Destiny isn't involved, is what I think is... I think Destiny is the plot device. Right. And the harmonica is an instrument. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that sounds about right. Okay, cool. What would be the worst instrument to have? What do you mean? Like, a tambourine of Destiny?
1: Wind chimes. I think wind chimes of Destiny would be really shitty.
0: Uh, That would be really frustrating. (laughs) Constantly being rewritten. (laughs)
1: oh god not again (laughs) i'm kind of into the xylophone of destiny though
0: yeah i'd be into that that Um, sounds pretty cool i feel like it would just be that uh that cartoon where the (laughs) skeleton plays the xylophone on his (laughs) ribcage.
1: that could be your xylophone of destiny
0: yeah because i'm a goth all right are you ready to move on into the minutiae Okay, Rick, you want to sing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. So, what category would you like to start off with?
1: Um, let's start off with the one I'm most confused about, which has got to be a sucker.
0: Okay. In each issue of a Defenders, or in this case, Marvel 2-in-1 comic, there is one character who has to act like the fat boys in the movie Crush Groove. <laughs> <laughs> and act in a way that is counter to their previously established character. And they just gotta be a sucker In this issue, who is your sucker? I think Val. Yeah. How so?
1: I think that her self-interest was not to just be affronted and confused when somebody came up and hugged her. Or to, like, actually be in the issue, I think, might have been in her best
0: interest. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... <laughs> I agree that 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 she acted in a way that is counter to what I think of her character as, but I gotta say, her previously established character, as it's been over the last few issues, unfortunately, I feel like this is really in keeping with the way that she has been written. <laughs> uh, full agreement. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see what you're saying there, and I was tempted, and that is the first thing that I have written down, was Val. But the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, I... Yeah. Do you think it's Steve? Yeah, I yeah. do. I, I think Steve backing off and respecting boundaries is very <laughs> much not the Dr. Stephen Strange that we have come to know over time.
1: Uh, maybe they just couldn't have him in this book and they were like, okay.
0: I think that's the case, although he still gets way more screen time than Val I mean, does.
1: Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's so weird.
0: I was also noticing in the Defenders issues, this is kind of a minor point, but you will have on the cover... The head of like the little,
1: mm-hmm, I saw this. Little
0: head of Namor and Doctor Strange and the Hulk, but they're Val's the three not main there. Characters. Val is never one of them. And then I I think it's even before she leaves, like Nighthawks in like two issues, and then he starts popping up where Namor used to be. Namor's still in a couple after he left, but Val never gets a little uh, head circle on the cover.
1: It's because because girls don't read comics.
0: Oh yeah, I forgot.
1: I mm-hmm. just want to remind you of important things.
0: So, sartorially speaking, what fashion choices that were made in this issue would you like to comment upon?
1: Well, I didn't see a lot of fashion choices because mostly it was the thing in his, like, cute little blue blue shorts. Yeah,
0: he's wearing a blue speedo. So
1: cute. (laughs) The enchantress's leggings are always very nice, but I was kind of confused by her shirt slash arm wraps. Yeah. It's a weird thing.
0: She has a I I love her tights. I think they're cool. They've got those weird infinity loops on mm-hmm. them that go all the way up to her legs, which is cool. She's also, I don't remember to what extent her tiara has always looked like this, but it's like just a big green butterfly landed on her forehead. And she's wearing basically just kind of like a tank top and then like armored bands around her arms, she looks right? She kind
1: of like the mummy. Her arms look like mummy arms.
0: A little bit. But, like, a high-tech mummy, I mm-hmm. think, because they're, like, made out of metal. So, like, a mummy's alive type
1: mm-hmm. mummy.
0: Did you ever watch that show?
1: Mm-hmm, no. Ah, oh,
0: it's a shame. That's not really. It wasn't a very good <laughs> one, but I did kind of like it.
1: Yeah, that was really it. I didn't really see... I mean, obviously, we've already discussed my feelings about Val's outfit.
0: Sure. You are against it. <laughs> you do not like her metal boob cones.
1: It's just so weird. Oh. And, and the other thing is, like, I remember... Her outfit was cool before, and I liked it.
0: It's weird because it is, the, I mean, I think it's the same, been the same artist throughout.
1: Yeah, but she used to have like a breastplate and not just boob cones. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. Maybe like the editors were like, you know what's hot right now?
0: Boob cones. Boob cones. <laughs> were they? I, I feel like those didn't really come out those and start were, being a yeah. thing until Madonna in it like was. the 90s.
1: Maybe Madonna saw Val and was like, you know what's hot? boob cones you
0: know what else people are constantly shooting my boobs gotta <laughs> yeah, put some armor on those things
1: phew <laughs> glad we did that glad we went through there um oh also the other sartorially speaking that i would like to s- discuss is wino in a colored shirt that shit's classy
0: mm-hmm. he's a classy wino he used to be a very good lawyer
1: i heard i heard <laughs> But collared shirt, why no? Not too bad.
0: Not bad. I also did like the executioner's adherence to his gas station uniform. There was a lot of the outfits in this, too, were like... He was still wearing that after his fight with the thing. But I guess it was just an illusion created by Amora, as was the whole gas station.
1: It was destiny. Let's leave it at that.
0: (laughs) But also, when the enchantress changes Valkyrie into Barbara Norris again... She is wearing a different magical outfit. She's just wearing like short shorts and a halter top.
1: Destiny. Okay. I married like the most comic book nerd nerd in the world.
0: Who is he? Is he bigger than me? <laughs> I'll murder him.
1: Speaking of that, what sound effects did you like?
0: Well, that was another weird thing about this issue. There were not very many sound effects. There were two. There were three. <gasps> okay. dun, dun, dun! <laughs> On page seven, we had Sam.
1: That was my favorite.
0: On page 14, we had (laughs) Thuck. That's (laughs) T-H-U-K, Thuck, which is the noise that it makes when the thing is dropped off of his illusory carport raising thing. Oh, there you go. But my favorite was on page 10, which is Crunch with a K, which is the executioner wanging on the thing with his... Mace, which I thought he normally had an axe, but I could be mistaken.
1: Maybe for gas stations, he has a mace.
0: Oh, it's part of his gas station attendant Mm -hmm. uniform Mm -hmm. because you could use the mace to uh, fix cars more than you could an axe. (laughs) Obviously. Good thinking. All right. What were your favorite words?
1: Uh, I don't remember what page it's on. It's when Doctor Strange is explaining to the thing all about what's going on with the plot.
0: Okay. Okay. That is... um,
1: I think, it's, I think it's when he's explaining to the thing all, what's going on with Val. And Dr. Strange says to the thing, it is on page six, he says, But I see I am confusing you, small wonder. But when I first read it, <laughs>
0: I read it as... You read that as a comma?
1: <laughs> I read it as a comma. So I read it as, but I see I am confusing you, small wonder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I see I am confusing you, small wonder.
1: And I thought that thought Dr. Was... Strange was uh, was conflating the thing with the, the, the child in Small Wonder, the wonderful television show from the 80s. You
0: mean Vicky, the robot?
1: <laughs> Doing Vicky. I don't think I've ever seen that show. I've just made jokes about it. Really? <laughs> really, truly.
0: I have watched way too much of that show.
1: I can't believe you can watch more than one episode of that show. It's
0: so terrible. <laughs> But I think when I was in high school and and possibly middle school, it was one of those things where it was like either before school started or right after school, it was just on TV and we had three channels and it wasn't the news. So I watched that.
1: See, that's how I feel about Cheers.
0: That's how you've watched so much Cheers.
1: (laughs) So I've watched a lot of Cheers. Watched a lot of Home Improvement.
0: Yeah. You are frightened by the theme song at the beginning of Cheers. I'm frightened by the pictures. (laughs) Like, is it kind of like they remind you of, like, The Shining type pictures? I don't pictures? know. Is, does, do you think it's ghosts?
1: <laughs> pictures are ghosts.
0: Oh, pictures are ghosts in a lot of ways. Wow, that's deep. You're I'm,
1: welcome. I made your podcast better. You <laughs> <laughs> always do.
0: Um, I made a very funny joke earlier today where my friend Derek is helping actualize this, but I had an idea for a meme. That was, if on Old Dirty Bastard's first album, which is called Return to the 36 Chambers, you switched his face with Fraser's face and called it Return to Diane Chambers.
1: What?
0: So funny I am. So funny.
1: Are we done with our cheers riff?
0: Yes. <laughs> Honestly, like I said, the writing style I really enjoyed in this, and... Steve Gerber has some great, like, super purple prose that I really dug. And the whole first page, the Mm -hmm. captioning in it, Mm -hmm. The first rays of dawn dapple the man-made haze over Manhattan in purples and crimson and in Central Park, the burgeoning daylight stirs derelict Alvin Denton to wine-blurred wakefulness. But it is not only the sun's light and warmth which dispel his sleep. There is also a sound, the thunderous pounding of pinions against the dew-moist morning air. The next instant, slim, sinewy fingers close around his collar, as Steely Arm yanks him from the splintery bench, and without even having seen the face of his captor, Alvin Denton is carried aloft. Like that's really cool. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I
0: really dug that.
1: I liked it when the thing said, "Now nah, I'm just stubborn."
0: I liked that. I my favorite. Well, we'll get to my favorite the thing thing, which I have already mentioned, in fact. But I actually really did like the last panel of oh, this. Oh yeah,
1: it was which sweet. is
0: it, it is sweet and it is the thing comforting Valkyrie because she just found out who her body dad, her body dad
1: was. Yeah.
0: That's a that's a creepy phrase. She just found out who her body's dad. That's not any better.
1: <laughs> There's This is so problematic.
0: <laughs> she just found out who a possible... That she no longer had a possible link to finding out more about her identity. Uh, in that the father of Barbara Norris just died. And she's distraught. And she gives a little speech about how she can't find out more about who she was through him. And says... I am but an empty facade of fiction. And the thing, like, gives her a hug and says, Uh-uh, whatever you are, kid, it ain't that. Or my shoulder wouldn't be getting drenched. Paper dolls don't cry. Only us real people got that problem. And I thought that was really sweet. And, yeah, I, I and also just very poetic. And, like, I like the thing.
1: Yeah. He seems
0: like a good guy.
1: He seems sweet.
0: But my favorite words are what happened because <laughs> it just sums up so much about this issue and it totally reminds me of the uh is it waiting for guffman it's not waiting for but guffman it's, it's, it's the mighty wind uh yeah a fred willard's character from a mighty wind yeah, yeah with the
1: what happened yep favorite panel the world's end was my favorite panel it was really pretty i loved the prose in it i thought it was great um, but I also just really like the Thing's face, and there were a bunch of like close-ups of the Thing's face doing expressions, and I thought that was really cool.
0: It's really impressive the way that people are able to use the Thing's face to convey expression because mm-hmm. he has just like a rocky exterior. There's one fairly early on where he's just like holding his chin and thinking. It's on page sixteen, mm-hmm. yeah, where he's just like talking to Alvin Denton and just holding his head thinking. Mm-hmm. But I think my favorite panel is, what happened? <laughs> it's so good
1: totally fair totally fair all
0: right so every issue of a defender's comic has a best defender and also a worst offender in this issue although it is not a defender's comic who was the best defender
1: uh that would be the thing (laughs) agreed he's great he's so great and i know that he's not a defender But I don't care, because there were only three characters, really, and... (laughs)
0: That could have been Alvin Denton.
1: Alvin Denton, but he also made the world end in in The Thing's defense.
0: (laughs) Right, sure. Yeah, because he believes that it is his destiny, or it is his destiny, or he manifests his destiny of dying drunk and alone. I
1: think he he manifested his internal landscape, which was the world ending, because his daughter was dead. That is my explanation for how that makes sense. Okay. And I'm manifesting that right now. Wow. By putting it into words.
0: Dang.
1: I'm pretty good at understanding why art happens. Oh,
0: good deal. (laughs) Maybe later we can have a discussion about what art is.
1: (laughs) Stay tuned,
0: folks. (laughs) (laughs) I just gave myself the douche chills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, the thing is the best offender. He's he's great in this. He's got a bunch of great lines. He's a cool, cool dude. I like that he is a version of Jack Kirby, and I think he's great. Conversely, worst offender.
1: I must say Val. I know that we've talked about why she's okay, and (laughs) she's okay. (laughs) Yeah. But I just, I find her... Her quest and her lack of agency as supposedly uh, like a badass chick to suck—it just sucks.
0: It's really frustrating. Yeah. yeah, I I agree completely. I decided to go with Steve for just being like, Peace oh, dudes. this world-ending thing is happening out there. Mm, okay, but there's some good stuff on television. I think Barney Miller debuts this month, so Actually, I'm going to be staying at home.
1: Happy days. Mm. Yeah.
0: Also, Barney Miller. <laughs> And yeah, so I was just annoyed with Steve for, for piecing out on this one. And yeah, I am also very frustrated with the way that, that Valkyrie is behaving.
1: It's, it's interesting because like her character doesn't seem as fixed as the other characters in a way. Like, and it, it might just be like it. And it's interesting how you talk about it to a certain extent too, because you say it's how she's written. Yeah. Versus like who she is. Like with Steve, like he's just kind of a douchebag.
0: Yeah. With
1: the thing, he's kind of a good guy. You know, with the Hulk, he's just an amazing Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but with her, it's just it's she doesn't seem to have as fixed of a character and you don't talk about her as, as if she has as fixed of a character. Yeah. And you ascribe a lot of her lack of agency to the way that she's being written. Which is true, but I'm just. But I
0: mean, it's how they're all. It's all how they're being written. You're totally right.
1: Just reflecting a little
0: bit. Yeah. No, that's a (laughs) a very good point. And you're right. I saw her as a victim of the writer in this issue for some reason more so than the other characters. So good call. I'm sticking with Steve, though. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, due to the largesse of our Patreon donors, we have a relatively new section called. A long time ago. So, in January of 1975, a very long time ago. I thought
1: it was January of 1974.
0: No, it's January of 1975. We're going to take a slight break.
1: <laughs> Whoops.
0: And I'm going to go first on this one. hmm Okay. So, in January of 1975, Wong decided to celebrate... International Women's Year, which this issue kicked off with a bang.
1: (laughs) You mean with boob cones?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but when they get shot at, it makes a loud clanging noise. So a bang. But uh, Wong decided to hang out with some of his favorite women. So he and Clea and Val decided to go. And he's like, hey, Val, you've had a rough month. Your maybe sort of dad figure thing that you just found out about died. That's gotta suck. What do you what do you want to do to to relax? And so Val decides to do what Val's favorite activity is, which is, hey, let's go to Home Depot and see what Dragon Fang can cut through. And Wong is like, yes, yes, yes. So he and Val and Clea go to Home Depot and just start cutting through shit.
1: I love that you think Home Depot's around in 1975. <laughs>
0: Vlog has access to Dr. Doom's time machine. So they go to Home Depot. And just start cutting stuff. And it's a great time. And, you know, they also, Clea's kind of standing lookout and, and, and being like, Oh, all right, there's no guys in Orange Fests around. So, okay, go, go, go. But one of the things that Clea ends up cutting through is there's just this... You mean Val. Yeah.
1: So, Women are not you. interchangeable. Good point.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that Val ends up cutting through is this cube that's just made out of marble. And she slices it once. And then she slices it again. She ends up like slicing it like eight times. And then the, like Wong's just like, that's awesome! That's awesome! And so she's... Yeah, encouraged by that. So then she's like, I'm just going to dice this whole cube up. So then she turns it, and then she slices it again. Another eight times, just making a ton of little tiny cubes out of it. And then Clea's like, all right, Orange Fest guy's coming. We got to get out of here. So they hit the bricks. But somebody stumbled across what they had been working on. And that somebody was named Erno Rubik. And he saw that one cube that had been subdivided by Dragon Fang's magical blade into many tiny cubes that were all stacked into a larger cube. And he got an idea. And that is why, on January 30th of 1975, he patented the Rubik's Cube. (sighs) And then he blew up... (laughs)
1: I mean, it's just the time-traveling Home Depot is the real part of the story.
0: <laughs> if you get, if you know a better use of a time machine, I'd like to hear it.
1: <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> Seems like some destiny is happening in your story.
0: A little bit. All right, smart gal. What do you think happened a long time ago in oh. a Home Depot far, far away?
1: I think... A long time ago. Picture this. Okay. It's January 6th in Boston. Mm Mm-hmm. Wong has traveled on a train to go and get some tickets to go see his current favorite band, Led Zeppelin.
0: Oh, because blues rock was so popular.
1: (laughs) It is because of the popularity of blues rock that Wong is there. Ah. (laughs) And he's like hanging out in the lobby and chilling. So he's patiently waiting to get some tickets for his new favorite group, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and he is doing some intense breathing meditation. And somebody steps on his foot. Oh no! I mean, Wong is no stranger to physical pain, but this person—they got the mean eyes. Are
0: they a supervillain?
1: No, they're just a meanie. Oh. They got a mean eyes and uh. they're looking at him and they're saying, "You're Wong." <laughs> To which he says yes, but...
0: Oh, but they, yeah. But
1: they meant you're... They had
0: a speech impediment. Yeah. <laughs> they were trying to say he was wrong,
1: uh-huh.
0: and he just wasn't getting that, and so they got more aggressive?
1: They got more aggressive, and he was trying to, like, push, like, keep them away from him using some really awesome Tai Chi moves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what happened was the person became off balance, and they knocked into that another person. Oh, jeez. And, and this other person was a real hothead.
0: Like Dormammu?
1: Like Dormammu! And he pushed the first guy who was bothering Wong, and then everybody was pushing everybody, and suddenly it was a riot. And not in a funny way. No. No, in a scary way. Oh. And so, in a way, Wong started the riot on January 6th in the lobby of a Boston concert venue. Oh. (laughs) To get Led Zeppelin tickets. But the other thing about it is he didn't learn his lesson. And while he was waiting for the January 7th concert, the same fucking thing happened.
0: Oh, jeez. Oh, Wong.
1: I know that breathing meditation is dangerous stuff.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on this very special episode of Titan of the Defense.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a lovely
0: show. Oh, thank you. And I just realized I forgot to record the part where I tell you where you can find us. So, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at ttwasteland underscore. And we are on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do so at patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. And that's that. What happened? What happened? And they know it. And they know
1: it. I am going to destroy you. Let's go. I want to keep that audio of me laughing uproariously. <laughs> oh, I'm sure there'll be plenty more. I'm
0: very funny. Says you. Mm-hmm.